Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. How many of you have seen the film Inception? Hands up. Okay. Great film. One of my favorite films of all time. It's about dreams within dreams within dreams within dreams. And uh, it's pretty messed with your head. If you remember the film, it hits the ground running. And you're confronted with this scene of Leonardo DiCaprio being killed. And the next moment, he's back to life. And the film carries on, as if nothing happened. And it takes you a while to realize that when you're killed in a dream, you go back to another level of dream or back to real life. But there's barely a moment to catch your breath as the film continues. And you're thrown in at the deep end and you hit the ground running. So you're constantly trying to work out two things. One... How do these dreams work? How do you go into a dream and out of a dream? What happens when you die and all the rest? And two, what is the bigger story behind it all, which means Leonardo DiCaprio is so obsessed with these dreams? And slowly by slowly, all the pieces of the puzzle come together and you start to understand not only how these dreams work, but you start to understand this bigger picture. That Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to appease his guilt and make atonement for a past mistake which still haunts him. And suddenly, at the end of the film, it all suddenly comes, you, know, you can suddenly understand the context and the history and Leonardo DiCaprio's history and how the dreams were. Suddenly, the whole film slots into place and you go, ah, I had to, only got that on the second time of watching the film, I have to say. But um, once you understand the history, once you understand the bigger storyline, then you can understand the power of the movie, I guess. And so today I want us to look at the biggest story of scripture, the overarching story, the history, because if we don't, we're never going to understand the book of Hosea. Um, So I want to show in Hosea 1, it's like a devastating and wonderful passage, but you'll never understand that unless you understand the big story of scripture and God's relentless love for his world and his people. So I'm going to tell you a story. Some of it will be familiar, some of it won't. If you want to take notes, it's in the handout. It starts like this. God made Adam and Eve. And he made everything perfect. And the word that in the Hebrew is shalom. It means wholeness or completeness. um, And it often comes across as peace in today's language. So why was it perfect? Right. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. And so they walked with God in the cool of the day. They trusted him. They loved him. There was what's called vertical peace, spiritual peace. Secondly, there was horizontal peace. Because our relationship with God was perfect, our relationship with each other was perfect. So Adam and Eve enjoyed each other's company. They enjoyed the best sex that's ever been enjoyed in the history of mankind before the fall. They enjoyed exploring God's good earth with each other. They were one flesh and they were completely satisfied. They complemented one another. There was horizontal peace, social peace. Because their relationship with God was perfect, because their relationship with each other was perfect, they also had inner peace. Adam and Eve, it says, were naked and unashamed. To live in a world where you fear nothing, you have to prove nothing, you no hiding, there's no shame, there's no pretense, you're perfectly secure. You're naked, you're vulnerable, but there's no shame. And so psychologically and emotionally, you're stable. We have vertical peace, horizontal peace, inner peace, and then outward peace. Because all the other relationships were, 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 were 
at one, that there was equilibrium. So we related to the planet perfectly. Adam, Adam named the animals and then enjoys exploring and eating and swimming and working and doing great things in creation. And we get a beautiful view here in Doro of God's good creation. And, but there was no abuse of creation. So peace with God, peace with one another, peace with ourselves and peace with creation. The Jewish idea of shalom. That was how every one of us was meant to live. And then it went devastatingly wrong in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They chose to follow their own desires. They chose to have control of of this world themselves. They listened to the voice of the tempter. And they put their desires above God. And it was devastating. Instead of walking with God in the cool of the day, they're hiding. And God has to call them out. And ever since that God-forsaken day, mankind has actually been hiding from God. We pretend we're searching for him, really. We, no one, it says, wants to come into the light to have their deeds exposed. Vertical peace is gone. Instead of horizontal peace with one another, we fight. There's envy, there's arguments, there's power struggles, there's competition. And in Genesis 2, you have the perfect marriage. In Genesis 4, you have the perfect murder. As a brother kills another brother. Cain kills Abel out of envy. I mean, this is... Shalom to murder in two chapters in the Bible. Instead of feeling secure, they make fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And suddenly they doubt themselves, their looks, their abilities, their worth, their dignity. They hide, they pretend integrity goes from this world. We suddenly have to hide and pretend and make ourselves seem better because we're not secure anymore. We have to prove something. And as Inward peace and emotional peace went. It left a devastating trail of depression, anxiety, doubt, fear, anorexia, and the relentless pursuit of contentment, which never brought contentment. So finally, mankind started to abuse creation, and and outward peace was gone. Do you see, when mankind said to God, we don't want you, they thought they were going to make this world a better place, but they ruined it. We we hide from God, we compete with one another, we doubt ourselves, and we abuse the world. Then God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to the ends of the earth. I want to restore shalom, not just in Eden, but all over this world. And I want to bless you, and I want to make you this amazingly big nation so that you can bring my peace and healing to the whole earth. And he said this famous phrase, this was the great promise. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and as sand on the seashore. God says, from you I'm going to make this amazing nation. I'm going to get to work to restore what was lost in Eden. But I'm going to make sure it spills out to the whole earth, doesn't just stay in Eden. And so Abraham uh, became the father of Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons have become the founders of Israel. Uh, But those 12 uh, tribes of Israel would go into slavery in Egypt, famously in the story of Joseph. And so God's people were not becoming numerous and wonderful and healing the world. They were slaves to a foreign nation called Egypt. So God says, right, I'm going to make another promise. This time to Moses. And he comes to Moses 
and says, I'm going to use you to bless the world. And Moses says, I'm pathetic. I can't even speak. And potentially Moses had a lisp or some kind of speak, uh, speech impediment. He goes, you know, who am I? And God says, I'll make you who you need to be. And then when Moses says, well, who are you? Which <laughs> is a wonderful moment. Saying to God, who are you? And God says this, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God is the very essence of being. All other being comes from his being. He's the one that was, who is, and will be. He is, I am. And he says, I'm going to use you, Moses, to deliver my people out of slavery. And so God's people were delivered out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. And they go through and the Israelites, the the Egyptians uh, uh, are destroyed in the sea. And he takes them. He says like this, these phrases in the Old Testament. I rescued you. On eagles' wings. You know, God, I'm rescuing you out of Egypt. And he says things like, he says things like, I will be your people and you will be my God. You will be my treasured possession. So God is saying, I want you as my own. And so he gives people the law and they go to Mount Sinai and God made promises to Abraham and now he makes promises to Moses. If you guys obey the law, then peace and shalom will come. If you live under my rule again, like you did in the Garden of Eden, peace will come to the whole world. But they failed. Like Adam and Eve, the people of God decided to do things their own way. They went for their own desires. And for 40 years, they wandered in a wilderness. Eventually, they did enter the promised land under Joshua. Joshua led them in. But you see, the people went astray. And if you read the book of Judges, there's murder, rape, incest, massacre, and lots more. And God would raise up judges like Samson, Deborah, Gideon, and others. But the book of Judges ends with this horrible moment. When it says, in those days, Israel had no king. No one was in charge. And everyone did what Adam and Eve did. Whatever they liked. I am the master of my own destiny. So the story of Adam and Eve keeps appearing in every generation afterwards. They disobey God. They do what they want. They reject God as their king. In fact, they don't even have a king. They just do whatever they like. And we're crying out for this moment. Well, when are our hearts going to change? But our hearts are stubborn. God in his mercy, though, said, I'm going to give you a king. And this king is going to bring order to this nation that's supposed to bless the world. So first, I'm going at a break next week. Don't worry if you miss the details. I'm going in a, uh, he, he first gives them Saul, and then King David, most famously, and then Solomon. Each Saul, David, and Solomon reigned for 40 years. So 120 years, Israel had a united kingdom and, uh, under those three kings. And you know what happened, particularly under David? Shalom started to come again. So they started worshipping God rightly. David got them. He wrote the Psalms. Like, they started worshipping again and relating to God properly. They defeated all their enemies. God helped them. So they had social peace. They were secure. They were in the promised land. It was a a land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, because it was a beautiful land, they, they used it. They didn't abuse it. It was fruitful. It wasn't the shalom of the Garden of Eden, but you kind of got a glimpse. Oh, if God's people would live in his way, look what could happen. And you know the most amazing thing? The other nations of the world, famously the Queen of Sheba, the richest woman in the world at the time, comes to visit Solomon. 
the nations are being blessed because they want to know what do God's people have that is so good. But they're still not as countless as the stars in the sky or as numerous as sand on the seashore. They're still not brilliant. And so what happens is it goes tragically wrong again. This time, excuse the names, Solomon's son Rehoboam has a civil war with another guy called Jeroboam. The joy to pronounce. And Rehoboam wasn't as wise or as God-fearing as his father Solomon. And so he didn't listen to the advice. And so this rivalry came up. And this is where it gets unbelievably complicated, but this is where the book of Hosea is, so we have to understand it. You get ten northern tribes called Israel living in the north in a place called Samaria under a guy called Jeroboam. And then you get the ten southern tribes called Judah living around Jerusalem with the temple that Solomon had built. So the two tribes of the south are called Benjamin and Judah. And they're overall, they're called Judah. Very complicated. Whatever happened, though, to the, the, the guys in the north, particularly, they mixed with the nations around them. They started worshipping false gods. One of the gods was the Canaanite god of Baal. He was the chief god. Baal meant master or husband. And he was famous for being the deity of fertility and nature. If you wanted your crops to grow, you prayed and worshipped Baal. In fact, you, may, you might sacrifice a child, which the Israelites got into. Child sacrifice. Because they mixed with the nations. So the people of Israel are split. And it's a pretty nasty read in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. Let me give you one example. From the northern tribes, in the 9th century... So this is sort of 900 years before Jesus. There's a guy called, don't worry about these names, but just get into the story. A guy called Ahaziah, king of Judah in the south, and Jehoram, king of Israel in the north. And they came together. And then Jehu becomes king. And he systematically goes on a killing spree in a place called Jezreel. Jezreel was a bloody place. He first of all kills the two kings, Ahaziah and Jehoram. He then kills the seven sons of the grandfather Ahab to make sure none of those guys can take the place of the kings he's just killed. Then he puts their heads in a basket and sends them to Jehu when he gets his army to do it. So they send it back to Jehu in Jezreel and he burns it in Jezreel. All the heads of the 70 grandsons of the previous king. That wasn't enough. It says in 2 Kings 10, Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, the grandfather king, as well as all the chief men, his close friends, his priests, leaving no survivors. He then slaughtered 42 of another man's relatives. Much blood was spilt in a place called Jezreel. It would have been like Auschwitz. It was a place of massacre and blood and genocide. Someone was trying to take out a family so they could be in power. Human rebellion and evil is rife once again in Israel. Things were so bad that eventually, just as God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, so he kicks his people out of the Promised Land. We are supposed to see the exile as a second Garden of Eden expulsion. And he kicks them out. So the ten northern tribes go to Assyria. The Assyrian Empire comes and conquers them. But God says, these are my instruments. I want want to judge my people in 722 BC. And the southern kingdom goes to the Babylonian Empire, which became a mega power for a couple of hundred years in 587. Have you got the picture? 
This is the big story of our world. You could carry on for many more generations from then on. But this is how the Bible reports it up to this stage. What would you do if you were God? You continually pour out your heart, your love, your blessings, your provision to your people in your world who continually reject you. Would you smite them? Would you pay them back? God sent the prophets. He was desperate to speak to them. If only they would listen. He sent Amos to the north. And soon afterwards, he sent a man called Hosea to the northern tribes. And then he sent Isaiah and Micah to the southern tribes. So look at Hosea 1.1 here on the screen. The word of the Lord. They came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah in the south. And during the reign of Jeroboam and Johash, king of Israel in the north. This is how it goes. Just to remind you all again, we have a united kingdom. David, Saul, David, and Solomon. We have a divided kingdom. Rehoboam is not very good, so Jeroboam takes off a rival crew of ten tribes to the north and two tribes in the south here. The northern tribes are called Israel, the southern tribes are called Judah. They both get exiled. They both get conquered by other nations. What does God want to say to his people in the midst of all this mess? Who would have thought it would be this? Go marry a whore. Go take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. So he, Hosea, married Gomer, daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. A better translation is this. Go marry a whore, get children with a whore, for the country has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh. God is asking his prophet to go and marry a prostitute. Would your God ever say that? Is our God too small to say things like this to us? I used to pastor a church in Leeds that met in a place called Holbeck. It was the red light district of Leeds. We had a warehouse that we converted there. And every time after the evening service, which was at 5 o'clock, so I'd be coming home at about 7 o'clock after speaking or leading or whatever, I'd drive back through Holbeck and there'd be multiple women dressed up trying to get my attention through the windscreen to see if I'd pay them £25 to go and have sex in an alleyway. God says to Hosea, Don't just go and have sex with one of them. Go and marry one of them. Knowing full well that she will go and have sex for £25 with other men and have children with other men, even though she's married to you. Now, why would God do that? Well, he wants Hosea to be a visual aid. God wants to say, Hosea, A, I want you to understand what I'm going through. And all the people, I want to put a visual aid in your face to say, this is how you're treating me. God is saying, I'm a lover. I'm a passionate lover. I'm like a husband, a pure, loving, and caring husband. I'm a bridegroom, but my people are like prostitutes. Even though I continually give them myself, they continually forsake me and run into the arms of other lovers. The land is the guiltiest of the vilest adultery in departing from God. Now think about what this means. God is saying, I am like a lover. 
There are many images of the Bible to help us understand who God is. And we're supposed to have them all together. So, God is a king. And we are his subjects. He rules us. God is a master. We are his servants. He gives us jobs to do. God is a shepherd. We are his sheep. He guides us to green pastures. God is a father. We are his children. He cares for us and protects us. They're all important metaphors. But you don't know God until you know him as a lover, a bridegroom, a spouse. And you see, this picture of God being a spouse is going to be picked up for the rest of the Bible. Hosea was the first person to use the idea of God being our spouse. Paul's going to use it in Ephesians 5. In fact, the end of the Bible is going to talk about a great wedding when the church is married to Jesus. Hosea was the first one in the Bible to do it. So this is what he wants to say to us today. This is from chapter 2. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will no longer, you will call me my husband, you will no longer call me my master. I think many people know God, or at least think of God as a master. And God says, I don't want to just be a master to you. I, yes, I want to be a master. I want to be a lover, a husband. Now, why does God want to be our, our, our lover, our spouse? Why does, he want to have a, why does he want to be married to us? Now, if God is your master, you obey him, you respect him, you fear him. You won't be captivated by him. He won't wake you up in the morning. He won't dominate your thoughts. You never daydream about your master, do you? You daydream about your lover, the one you love. So let me just help understand this a bit more, okay? God wants a relationship like a marriage with us. Why is a marriage a helpful metaphor? A marriage is a relationship of priority. When you're married, it's the most important earthly relationship. If it's not the most important earthly relationship, your marriage is shot. Which is too often these days. So God says, I want to be number one. I want to be the first priority. Secondly, marriage is a relationship of power. The person you're married to knows you the most. They spend more time with you than anyone else. You share your money, your life, and your emotions, and your decisions with this person. This is a relationship that's going to profoundly change you because you're having to share so much with another. I once heard someone say this. If the world thinks you're ugly, but your husband thinks you're beautiful, you'll be okay. If the world thinks you're beautiful, but your husband thinks you're ugly, it will destroy you. Because they're the one that have the most power in your life. And if your husband thinks you're beautiful... No matter what the world thinks, you can move out into that world with confidence because you have a backing from a husband who thinks you're beautiful. That's what God wants to be to us. And finally, oh, not finally, thirdly, it's a relationship of intimacy. Not just physical intimacy, although definitely that's included, but emotional, spiritual intimacy. God wants to bring us pleasure and joy and comfort. And finally, Life-changing potency. You see, if a marriage is a, your, the most important relationship in life, if it's a relationship of power where this person is going to change you and, and share life with you, if it's, a, if it's a relationship of intimacy where they're so close, then it will have this absolute life-changing potency in your life. Leanne has changed me more than my parents. Because that is how powerful marriage is. She sees me. She, we share everything together. She knows my strengths and my weaknesses. I can't hide from her. And if I try to hide from her, she knows and can call me out on it. When God says, when Hosea says, 
God wants not just to be your master but your lover. He's saying, I wanna, God is saying, I want to wake you up in the morning and have you thinking of me. I want to fulfill you. I want to be a relationship of priority, a relationship of power. And everyone else in this world might think you're ugly and horrendous. But as long as you know that I think you're beautiful, you'll go out into that world with confidence. I want to have a personal, intimate, experiential relationship with you. It's as daring as this. The most wonderful marriage, the most intimate and pleasurable of sex, is but a drop in the ocean of the joy and pleasure and intimacy that God wants to give us. He says, I want that kind of relationship with you. And if I can be all those things, I will absolutely radically change your life. Not because I'm demanding things like a master, but because I'm captivating like a lover. So he is our master, our shepherd, our father and our king, but he wants to be our lover too. He wants to transform our lovers. Now, second application before we finish. This is where the rubber hits the road. This helps us understand what sin is. Okay. When a king sees his subjects disobeying him, he punishes them. He's the king. When a master sees his servants undermining him, he disciplines them and rebukes them. When a shepherd sees his sheep wandering off, he gets anxious and goes after them. When a father sees his children get a disobedient, he's angry and he disciplines them too. When a lover sees his beloved in the arms of another, that is just totally different. When a lover sees his beloved naked and in bed and relaxing after making love with another, I mean, what, what emotion do you put next? What emotion do you put next? How does that person feel? It's different. You're trampling on his heart. You're rejecting his love. You're spurning his embrace. You're betraying his trust. You're intimate, naked and vulnerable and sharing that intimacy with someone else. Do you feel hurt and humiliated, betrayed and angry? Do you feel all of those things? I think your heart is bleeding with agony and the intensity of your pain is too much to bear. And it's an anger that's so intense you've never felt because your love was so intense. So love and anger aren't... Opposites, they're two sides of a coin. I love this person so much and they're in the arms of another. Ah! Your heart bleeds. It's a jealous anger because it's a jealous love. I grew up in Birmingham in the UK. And just around the corner there was a guy called Jeff Thomas. He was a middle, middle class man who lived an, had an affluent life. He had a good job. Two kids who were my age in their teenage years. One day... He came home and found his wife in the arms of another man. And he murdered her. His emotions were so intense. He couldn't cope with the thought that his beloved wife was in the arms of another man. And he loved her that much. What, his heart just spilled over in anger and then murder. He immediately phoned the police, handed himself in, did 25 years in jail. How does God feel when we wander off? I mean, there's the, the emotion in his heart. It's, it's not like he doesn't want to punish. I mean, he's, just, he's got so much love. And then the intensity when we run to false lovers. He's angry, but that's because he's a jealous lover. That's how God felt when the people of Israel went to false idols. That's how Hosea felt, as we'll see in chapter 2, when Gomer goes running after other men. In fact, we'll see it even now. And that's how God feels when we run to other things other than him 
to find satisfaction. Very quickly, Hosea has three children. The first one is Jezreel. Do you remember what happened in Jezreel? God is saying, call your child Auschwitz. You've got to become a visual aid of what you've done. The people, you've ruined this world. This bloodbath, there has to be punishment. You need to make sure this is marked. The massacre. He says, call the second one Lohumah, which means not loved. God is... God is threatening not to love his people anymore. I'll call your second child that not love, because you don't, I mean, potentially, you see, the, the scholars think that the second child isn't Hosea's. It's another man's child. Gomer's run up with another man. And so he says, call the other child not love, because it's not even your child. And that's definitely what happens in the third one. Call your child Loami, not my people, because this isn't your child. Hosea is down a back alley having sex with another man and they have another kid. You must give him the name, not my child. I mean, this is the strength and the the fierceness of God's emotion as he's trying to help the people of Israel understand through the prophet Hosea. God is so hurt by what his bride, his lover, has done in rejecting his love that he threatens to abandon his bride altogether. It sounds as if divorce is on the cards and God is going to go, enough. I'm off. And then there's a dramatic change in verses 10 and 11. And suddenly you see that God's heart is like a lover. It's torn, there's anger and then there's deep love. And the anger is only an expression of this deep love. And his heart is, what do I do? Do I reject my people? But I love them. And I made marriage vows to them. To Abraham I made promises. To Moses I made promises. I must fulfill these promises. God is a faithful husband. Yet the Israelites will be sand on the seashore. Which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it said you are not my people. That child will me. They will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah. South. And the people of Israel will be reunited. And then have one leader. And will come out of the land, for great will be the day in Jezreel. This is a, re- a renewing, I guess, of what was done previously. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. God is saying, I am going to remember my marriage vows. Even if my people do the worst things, I made a covenant with them. I can't leave them. I have to fulfill my marriage vows. And he says... There's going to be a new leader um, reunited, and they'll appoint one leader. And obviously, this is talking about Jesus, who will come and reunite the people. And we'll get onto that uh, later today. So, this is an amazing, emotional, powerful story of what actually God's been doing since day one on planet Earth. He is a lover who wants to fill us with his love, satisfy us. Be intimate with us. Change us. Transform us. We continually reject him. He wants to burst out in anger, but he's a lover. And he's made commitments. And he's going to be faithful. So Isaiah, to finish, puts it like this. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face for you from a moment. For with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you says the Lord, the surge of anger was on Jesus for a moment. So with everlasting kindness, he could call us back and have compassion on us. 
This is the relentless love of God. Last night, we looked at what Jesus would be like, if it, what it is like to say to Jesus, you're my first love. Today, we need to remember that God is a relentless lover. He's desperate for us. He's coming after us. He wants to punish us, but he can't. His heart is too loving. And we're going to see how that gets reconciled. How does God's love and anger get reconciled? We'll see that later. But he wants to ravish us and fulfill us.